you would have seen an affluent young woman who was 30 years old getting out of her gold Toyota Highlander with her beautiful newborn son in her Ann Taylor suit, walking up to a home in a very affluent neighborhood that she could no longer afford. Not too long after that, like maybe like halfway in, like maybe two years in, I just couldn't take it anymore. I couldn't take the pressure of upholding this thing that was not really true. And so I started to just become very radically honest. In a world of highlight reels and social media filters, being honest can feel counter-cultural. The casualty of living a highly curated life is losing touch with what is true and honest in ourselves and others. We end up chasing an illusion of success, love, and belonging. And this path leaves us feeling empty and lost. When you forget how to be honest with yourself, you also lose your capacity for courage and discomfort. And this keeps you doing what feels easier instead of what is right. But this is unsustainable. If you choose to be honest about your own circumstances, you'll face some hard truths. And stepping into radical honesty can stir up a lot of emotion. For example, When you choose to be honest about your mental health struggles, it may mean facing fears of rejection and feeling misunderstood. Or maybe when you choose to be honest about being treated poorly by a coworker, you risk backlash. Or when you choose to be honest with yourself about your values instead of going along to get along, you risk not being included and losing your community. Yeah, radical honesty may feel terrifying. And choosing to be honest with yourself and others definitely has its risks, but you'll also experience the rewards of deeper connection and meaningful work. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. When you're not honest with yourself, you end up living a disconnected life. You may feel connected to your life when you get the dopamine hits of likes and follows or public affirmations from colleagues. Though, let's be honest, these external validations never seem to feel enough and are rarely satisfying. But you keep plugging away, staying the course laid out by a set of rules and cultural norms that feel like they're the only way to do life and work. I know many leaders who fight to hold the facade of the image they want the world to see. And if you live a life where your worthiness and safety are woven into the opinions of others, it makes sense why so many cling to a life that is unsustainable and out of alignment. You may not even know you're disconnected from yourself and the life you're living until things come crashing down. Or maybe you're like me, where you know something's off with your life and work but feel stuck or unclear about what could or should change. It often takes a big crisis to push us out of the grind of life we're living to reflect and reevaluate. It could be the loss of an important relationship that takes away your ability to function in your usual capacity. Or it could be a physical or mental health crisis that shuts down your ability to do business as usual. Maybe your place of work asks something of you that pushes you over the edge to where you can't tolerate or take working there anymore. 
whatever the catalyst is that brings things crashing down, getting honest with yourself and your circumstances is the only way through figuring out what next steps to take. This often means choosing between keeping up the illusion of a life you're living or doing the tedious and often slow work of rebuilding your life from the inside out. And that is exactly what today's Unburdened Leader guest did. She rebuilt her life from the inside out after a painful bankruptcy. It wasn't until she got radically honest with herself did she regain her footing and did the work that has allowed her to build a business and a life that is aligned and healthy. Through her podcast, The Bold Money Revolution, as well as her program, The Bold Profit Academy, Tara Newman supports service providers in creating premium offers and scalable sales systems so they can significantly increase their profitability. As a Profit First certified consultant, she ensures women can pay themselves well, hire a team, and leverage their small business to create generational wealth. Using decades of entrepreneurial experience and a master's in organizational psychology, Tara is uniquely qualified to teach leaders to run businesses without sacrificing their health, relationships, or integrity by establishing behaviors, habits, and rituals aligned with their vision of success. Now listen to how Tara unpacks her experience of bankruptcy and how it inspires her work today supporting business owners. Pay attention to how Tara deepened her capacity and confidence through her relationship with the numbers in her business. And notice what shifted in Tara in her view of herself after her recent ADHD diagnosis. Now, please welcome Tara Newman to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Tara, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here with you. I'm excited about this conversation. Me I've been too. wanting to have this conversation with you for a while on the show, and I'm glad we finally could make it happen. And in typical unburdened leader fashion, I want to drop in <laughs> to a, a tough time in your life. I want to take you back to 2010. Yep. I'm going to go back in time. And our world was, then was still reeling, trying to regroup from the great recession. They say it was 2007 to 2009. Mm-hmm. And I know that your family was not left unscathed and scathed, and you and your husband had to file for bankruptcy in 2010. Can yep. you tell us what was going through your head at the time? Yeah. So, you know, I, I kind of want to, first of all, set the stage for this and say that Please. we started a business in 2005. It was a multiple six-figure manufacturing startup where Mm. my husband was a a third of an owner. I was a third of an owner. My father was a third of an owner. And we were manufacturing plastic parts, rotationally molded plastic parts. And I say this because I think we see a lot of startup stories today that just are not grounded in reality. And they're 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 not truth. So if like we think of some of the popular startup stories that we hear today, we we think of WeWork, Adam Newman. I'm reading the book Hype right now, and that is all about it's called Hype, how scammers, grifters, and con artists are taking over the internet and why we're following. And wow. in there they talk about Billy McFarland, who was the Fire Festival person. Mm -hmm. They do mention Donald Trump. And they also talk about like Elon Musk, right? And these are businesses that are surviving 
on capital. Also, the, the other one is Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos, right? And these businesses are surviving on on venture capital with trumped up P and Ls, and they're not actually making a profit. They're mm. way overvalued, and so and, and there's also no real consequences for when harm is done by these companies. Can I pause you real quick though? Yeah. So so for you to talk about this right now, when I want to ask you about your bankruptcy, you're wanting to pull us back and maybe address some of maybe the stereotypes or the mm-hmm. the beliefs around bankruptcy. I'm hearing you start to differentiate yeah. from the grifters, folks who are just exploiting, yeah. splitting people versus your story, which I know you're going to get to. Yeah, I do. Because, you know, when we, when there's a lot of people who are doing business, whether it's in the online space or not in the online space, but use the internet for stories and for inspiration and for things. And I just want to be clear that we're not always seeing the reality of what is happening. And the truth isn't always there, right? There's a a lot of reasons why people aren't being fully truthful. And so I want to be a very honest reflection of startup businesses, of small business ownership, and be very honest around what transpires in, in these situations and that they're not all rosy colored, that are not all unicorns and rainbows, even though that's often what we make it seem like. Mm. Gotcha. Have you read the real quick? Have you read the book Cultish: The Language of Fanaticism? No, not yet. Add it to add it to your list after this because Amanda Montel, the the way they describe it is she is the social science of cult influence and how mm-hmm. cultish groups from Jonestown Scientology to Soul Cycle and social media gurus use language as the ultimate form of power. So I feel like that's yeah. a good. I can't put it down, Tara. So I'm excited to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so back I'm, to your story. <laughs> and I'm just genuinely alarmed for what we're seeing in mm. like this post truth space. Right. And so if I can be have if, if there's one change that I can make, and that's me showing up and being honest and being open, which is why I really love these questions. So 2010 bankruptcy, after five years of financially struggling to get this multiple six figure investment startup off of the ground. Mm-hmm any kind of venture capital, we've capitalized ourselves, And that was largely part of the problem is that we were undercapitalized for what we were trying to do. Combined with a lot of naivete, like we had no business starting this type of a business, even though we knew a lot, even though we were experts in what we each did and brought to the table, it, it was very clear that we were well over our heads from the very beginning with things like we didn't realize we really had to sell. Like we were delivery people. We were great on the process and on the people and on the team building and on the delivery part. But in, in you know, knowing numbers and things like that, but that whole sales piece, which is so funny, right? It's like that's how you have a business, which is why I'm so passionate about teaching sales today. We weren't fueling the business great with revenue. And we had one really large client and they decided that making product in America was just too expensive. And so they sent it to China. Mm. And, you know, when we do these things, when we make these decisions as businesses, we have a huge impact on our domestic economy. 
You know, when we decide we want to buy cheap, when we decide we want to really cut corners, when we decide that we want to nickel and dime, this is impacting the livelihood of Americans and people in this country. Um, and so we made the difficult decision five years in, not necessarily because we wanted to, we were forced at that time, just as the banks, remember the banks were, the problem in, in 2008, 2009, it was an 18 month period where the banks were crumbling. They had made really mm -hmm. bad decisions with lending and they were in, in crisis and that was about to collapse. They did get a bailout, but then they called in a lot of lines of credit, whether it be for businesses or even on homes. So simultaneously, we had our home line of credit pulled back, which we were using to some extent, not a lot, but at times we, we had to use that as well as they called in our business line of credit. And that was really mm. the problem is that they said we had 30 days to pay back our business line of credit or they were going to seize the collateral and the assets that we had put up. And I was confused because I said to my husband, we don't have anything. What are they taking? And, you know, the third business uh, partner was my dad, and we had sent him to the bank to deal with the line of credit because this was his expertise in owning a business for as long as he had, and he put up collateral. So they weren't going to take anything that I had. They were going to take his commercial property if we didn't pay that loan back in 30 days. Mm. So that was quite problematic. And that really drove the decision to go bankrupt because what happened was, and, and when I talk about bankruptcy, I really want to acknowledge the, the privilege in being able to declare bankruptcy. Tell me more. Well, it costs money. You have to hire an attorney <laughs> to declare bankruptcy and there's filings and there's fees to actually go bankrupt, right? And there's also the access to the information that you can go bankrupt or how a bankrupt proceeding would work, or even just having the mental and emotional support as you're going through something like that. I think there's a lot of privilege there. And, and there's certainly a tremendous amount of privilege in, in my failure and in this story, because what happened was my dad liquidated his assets, he paid the loan, and then he was very angry with us and rightfully so-ish. And, and he didn't take responsibility for some of his part in the partnership. And so we were very angry at him. And he demanded that be paid back in full uh, with interest. And we couldn't keep the business going. We couldn't pay him back. We couldn't pay back some of the credit card bills that we had on the business. So we ultimately decided to go bankrupt and we were able to liquidate some things and pay him back. And so that's really that bankrupt story and how, how that time in our economy affected us. So on a very kind of day-to-day -day level, what would we see if we were watching you do life during this challenging season? That is such a great question because it really depends on what part of this, it was five years. Oh gosh. That we were, that, so what happened was my husband started the business in January, 2005. He he started the business because his company that he was working for was moving. So he was out of a job. So we lost two thirds of our salary right out of the gates. Wow. And then he didn't collect the salary until October. And so when we decided to start the business, I found out I was pregnant with my son. 
Huh. Okay, so that first year, it was we were keeping up with the Joneses. Like nothing changed. Like every, even though we lost two thirds of our salary, this was our biggest mistake. Is that we had saved a whole boatload of cash to handle those initial peaks and valleys, but we didn't change our lifestyle until uh. a year to eighteen months in. We're like, oh, we got this. It, it was very hopeful. Like the money's just going to start coming in. Look, we have this business plan. We wrote it out on paper, so it's just going to happen. And it, and it, it didn't happen that quickly. And so Can, we. Let me ask you a through. quick question. Yeah. Was that really hope or was that more of just kind of a bypassing optimism? How would you word it? I would word it as na- naivete. Ah, okay. Like we, we, everybody says you need to have a business plan. So we did. We wrote numbers down. <laughs> <laughs> it's just going to happen. Okay. <laughs> right? Like it was just naive. That's not actually how it works, unfortunately. I would love for it to be that way that you write numbers on a paper and they just materialize. That would be, that would be <laughs> yeah, a we, drastically different world. <laughs> But like, this is sort of the part of that grifting conversation, right? Like, but but that's not how this happens. And so we were like, yeah, it's going to happen any day, like any, any day. Like, this is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to work really, really hard. And then we get the payday. That's what entrepreneurship is. That's what we believed oh. entrepreneurship was. You work, you work hard, you put in your sweat equity. And payday. you get the payday. Right. And so we, we ran through our savings. We didn't. So you would have seen, and I, I talk about this a lot, you would have seen an affluent young woman who was 30 years old getting out of her gold Toyota Highlander with her beautiful newborn son in her Ann Taylor suit, you know, walking up to a home in a very affluent neighborhood that she could no longer afford to the point that, you know, when that Highlander lease was up, I couldn't even afford a new lease payment. They had made changes to the Highlander and the leases has got, had gone up and we had to go and buy a, buy a car off of auction that, you know, was more what we could, we could f- afford to pay for on a, on a monthly basis. So initially you would have seen quite a, a facade and then somewhere probably not too long after that, like maybe like halfway in, like maybe two years in, I just couldn't take it anymore. I couldn't I couldn't take the pressure of upholding this thing that was not really true. And so I started to just become very radically honest. And mm. we we lost a lot of friends and we we lost a lot of of our lifestyle for lots of different reasons, but I would see you know people would be like, "Let's go out to dinner." And I'd be like, "We can't afford that." you know, the business isn't doing very well right now. It's very hard for us financially. We would love for you to come and have dinner here and we can hang out and and talk or play games or whatever. You know, that didn't last long. There weren't a lot of people who wanted to do that. And we turned down every birthday, almost every birthday invitation because we couldn't afford to be buying gifts. We, My son was born in October and we would take his birthday presents and we would let him open them and then we would hide them and rewrap them for Christmas. Um, hmm. you know, so there wasn't a lot of money for gifts, any kind of wedding or anything like that was a no, like there was a lot of no's and it was an honest no, it was, we cannot afford to attend your wedding. We wish you so much love and happiness and under different circumstances, we would have loved to be there, but this is not an expense that we can afford right now. Tell me about the shift of 
living the facade to radical honesty? When did it click for you to not hustle to try and keep up the image versus just here's where we're at and letting the chips fall where they may? There was just an unsustainability about it Mm -hmm. that my body just couldn't, you know, I don't think it was actually a thinking thing. Uh. You know, it was like, you know, right after my son was born was, you know, so amazing, right? Newborn, but then there's postpartum depression. I had to go back to work full time in a corporate environment, which was very Ooh. oppressive. My boss used to wait for me with her clipboard at my office at 8 a.m. staring at the clock. Oh, it was terrible. Oh my goodness. He, so when they get sick in daycare, you have like an hour to pick them up. And I was going into her office one day to say like, hey, I'm sorry, my son's sick. I got to go. And she's like, oh, while you're here, let's just do your performance appraisal. It was totally like, okay. yeah, it was terrible. It was like, it was, it was, it was untenable. And, and there were just so many components of my life that were, that were untenable. So truth was it. Truth was it. It was that just was the easiest path. The only path really. Yeah. yeah. It, it was just, it was just mm. the easiest path. And so you talked kind of, there was the keep up with the Joneses, radical truth. And then towards the end of those five years, what would we see? So you would see, it was, you know, it was, it's complicated. So you would see somebody who was a lot wiser. Mm. You would see very different decisions being made. I joke about how my husband and I would be putting on deodorant in the morning and we would remind each other just one swipe. Wow. So when we went bankrupt, we didn't have any personal debt. It was business debt. It was, we knew we couldn't afford things. So, you know, you would see a woman who almost every weekend was selling things from her house. So I sold the high chair right out from underneath my daughter. She actually never even sat in a high chair. She sat in a booster. So I was like, okay, we have something for her to sit in to eat. It doesn't have to be a high chair. The high chair is going to get me a lot of money on a garage sale. And I can use that money to pay for food, for, for diapers, for uh, a double stroller that I needed at the time because by the, this is 2008. My daughter was born. Nobody has a second shower for you. Nobody cares. <laughs> we could barely afford the kid we had. And, and so we were making some really hard decisions. You were seeing me really probably be incredibly discerning about what mattered in my life, what I had energetic capacity for and what I didn't. You would see somebody who, in this time period, I this is where I found mindset work, specifically around money. So you would see somebody who is very diligent about managing her her thoughts and mm-hmm. and you know think and how I how how I thought about things. And by the time we made the decision to for bankruptcy, it was relief. Gotcha. But there was also a lot of gratitude, to be honest. Gratitude for. Or about well, it was, always, it was always so shocking to me that just no matter how badly this experience went, I was grateful mm-hmm. for it because I knew that I was going to learn and become somebody different from it. So, so on that note, what surprises you about yourself when you look back on this time? I think what surprises me the most is that the range of emotions that I was able to hold at that time. I think the gratitude that I felt for having the experience, this, despite how how awful and horrendous it was, 
and I think that I, that I'm here. It was like That's a real so like I survived moment. It was there was no thriving. <laughs> I survived. <laughs> gotcha. You know, and and you started touching on this, but how is the burden of this experience? How does that inspire your work with business owners today? Mm. So a couple of things that I hear, the main, one of the main things I actually hear from women who run small businesses that I work with, you know, they're experts at what they do, but they're not experts at business or they're not experts at money. And they say like, oh, I feel embarrassed that I'm running a business, but I don't have a business degree. And I always say to them, well, I went to business school and I went bankrupt. So you don't have to, because (laughs) all of my lessons, you know, have come out of that experience in my, in my life. And when I talk about money and when I talk about business and when I talk about the fear and anxiety and worry and stress that comes with business ownership. Gallup did a recent survey that 60% of women feel daily, are worried daily about their businesses. Women small business owners experience, 60% of women small business owners experience daily worry. And that is dramatically different than their male counterparts. I have a much different perspective on that because of the experience that I had And if I can be the calm in the entrepreneurial storm and be the example and the evidence that bad things happen, but there's a lot of good that can come of those things and that there's resilience there, then then that's really how that really comes forward and inspires. But you're right. Being an entrepreneur and a business owner, it it is a storm. And it's so funny because I even think I'll be the exception. And I work with people think I'm going to do it differently so I can avoid the storm. Like you you can't, you know, owning a business finds the little cracks and the crevices where your insecurities or your vulnerabilities lie and it pokes (laughs) at it. And sometimes it blows it up and there isn't avoiding the storm. It just is inevitable. And even those who try to avoid it, they end up white knuckling until they just crash. I have the luxury of being able to say like, what's the worst that can happen? I'll go bankrupt. Like, <laughs> I did that. I'm here. My credit score score 10 years later is amazing. Yeah, you really have have risen. So I want to talk about you touched on this a little bit because you were working full time mm-hmm. in a corporate job. You had started your own business working with business owners and leaders in around 2014. And you left your corporate job shortly after that. So walk us through, again, you gave us a flavor of a little bit of the emotional weight of this job, but walk us through your decision to leave the financial security of your corporate job, especially at this time for your new online business. Yeah, it was interesting because you and I, I think, have a similar story in the sense that in April of 2014, I collapsed with pneumonia Mm. and it went a little misdiagnosed. I actually diagnosed myself. I walked into the clinic and I'm like, it's not what you think it is. It's pneumonia. <laughs> I feel like a horse is standing on my lung on my back. <laughs> He's like really, it's the worst. yeah, it really gone a little probably further than it, it should have because they thought it was a sinus infection. Uh, and I did, th- I actually thought I was going to die. Hmm. Two young kids and my husband, he's a hard hustler, whether he works for himself or whether he works for somebody else. And he always has worked in manufacturing. And it was one of these times of crazy manufacturing where he was working like a 36-hour shift and I was home with two babies and pneumonia. 
And and I, I'm like, you left me to die. Like, I, I didn't know if I was going to make it through the night. Mm. And I went to see uh, a nutritionist, uh, a holistic doctor, uh, naturopath after, and she was like, listen, you, you, you have end stage adrenal fatigue. You are beyond exhausted. You need to make some serious life decisions and consider your career choice choices. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I don't know how you leave the six figure salary plus the benefits I barely pay for plus the match on my 401k, like all the things they tell you, you need to have to be like a upstanding Uh member of society. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm like, I don't know how you leave that behind. Like, so that was April of 2014. And uh, August 2015, August 20th, so like tomorrow, like it would be my anniversary, I, I walked out. I left. I quit. I left my job by that point. Six years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that really, I, I somehow had to go from, I don't believe this is possible to it. it's happening in my mind. And there, it, it's not about physical proof. Because there have been times where I had less money and had felt more secure. And there were times where I had more money and felt less secure. And at this time in my life, I had probably the most amount of money in the bank that I could possibly have. And, you know, I still didn't feel like it was the right time. So it was a mental journey to get from, I don't see how this is possible. I could never do something like this. Excuse me, even though I've really wanted to, it's been my dream to it's done. I'm walking out. I'm leaving. Bye. So tell us about when you hit that point where you're like, I'm done. So I had been blogging because as, as an outcropping of this bankruptcy there was healing that happened and it, it looked differently from me and my husband. So my husband went the path of Ironman triathlon, (laughs) (laughs) a lot of running, swimming, biking, healing, and like having to have this like big, amazing goal that he achieved, I think to, to make him feel and find his worthiness again after this failure. And for me, it was writing. And so through him being doing triathlon, I started a blog. And so my blog was that I, my, the premise, the reason why I started this blog was I never wanted anybody to feel alone in their daily struggles that nobody wants to talk about, that nobody will admit to, but that everybody's having. Like? Like business failure, like, you know, not making enough money, like not being able to pay your bills, like feeling like you're, you're, you're unworthy or postpartum depression or, or chronic illness or just being a mom. I mean, like, right. There's so much struggle that we don't want to acknowledge. And so this blog was just like, I'm going to put myself out there and people are going to read it and they're just not going to feel alone. So your truth, I'm just connecting the thread of that shift of truth and carried on. You're like, I'm going to continue to about uh, just to speak truth about my, ex- my lived experience. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Like that was probably the greatest gift that came out of that time for me was just to be able to say like, this is how it is for me. Hmm. Clarity. Yeah. And so I, I had this blog 
And then John, we spent 18 months preparing him to run Ironman Lake Placid. And that was July 2014. So we just passed that July 28th, 2014. We just passed that anniversary as well, which was incredibly significant for both of us, but in different ways. And I have fully bought into the Disney princess story. Like he was my knight in shining armor on the white horse. And he was going to come in and provide me the life that I wanted, the goals. He was going to like somehow he was going to fulfill my goals and my dreams and if I just focused enough of my attention on en- and energy on him, getting like being for his career and getting what he wanted and him achieving these goals, that that was going to be how I achieved mine. Like it was going to pay itself forward back somehow. And we prepared for, we changed our entire life, our entire lifestyle for 18 months so he could train. By the end, he's training 20 hours a week and working a full-time job. So you can imagine that I was doing a lot of the parenting. <laughs> A lot of the lifing, and he was sleeping when he wasn't doing those two things. So he runs Ironman Lake Placid in the typical badass fashion that my husband approaches any athletic pursuit. And they have horrible mountain storms that day, and it's thundering, and it's lightning, and it's sheets of rain, and they're pulling people out of the water, but he was able to swim fast enough to get through the shortening up the swim. He was riding his bike through hyperthermia. He, I mean, like, oh man, like you have no idea. You have no idea. It was just, it was just an entire experience in itself. And he gets through the uh, finishing arches, which were in the Olympic circle up in Lake Placid, and he's an Ironman. He's accomplished this amazing goal. And the reaction to it was not what I thought it would be for myself. Like I thought that this was going to be my moment too, because we did this together. This was Mm. the promise that we were doing this together and that I was going to have like my moment. This was going to be our moment. And, and he absolutely will, will always say that he couldn't have done this without me, but I didn't feel that. I didn't feel the same level of accomplishment to a goal that he had. And I actually felt very small mm. standing beside him. Like, well, what, what, did, what am I doing with my life? What's my big goal? What's my Iron Man? And I think I had worse post-race depression than he did. Wow. And I remember the next day um, – sitting on the floor of my hotel room talking to a friend of mine who's also a triathlete. And I said to him, I don't know, I think John needs to run another race or something because, you know, I'm feeling like really let down. And then I remember a week later calling him and saying, no, I'm going to start a business. This is, that's going to be my Ironman. Starting a business is going to be my Ironman. And that was August. And December, I sent out my first email saying, hey, I'm doing this thing. Who wants to, who, who wants to buy it? (laughs) to my very small email list that was associated with my blog. And by the time I received my bonus check from work in January, my monthly revenue was larger than my bonus check. No way. So I was like, I'm like, okay, I'm going to be leaving. And so I started having conversations with my, my boss, which was a different boss than the one I was previously talking about. And like they paid me a a ton more money. I got like probably one of the largest raises I had ever received. And it just, it wasn't, it just wasn't going to keep me. And then in May, I had said to my husband, 
it's coming. I'm, I'm leaving. Like we're getting, like, it's going to, I'm going to pull the plug on this. So we need to figure out financially, like we better start socking away more money than we even had been. And we went on this whole two months, how much can we save? Because I, I then went on a leave of absence. I had purposely gone on a leave of absence so I could act as if and see if this was really what I wanted to do. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and, and then when I, I returned, I gave my notice and I was out. I was like, yeah, this is done. I'm done. What would have been the stakes if you chose to stay in that job for you? I don't want to sound over dramatic, but honestly, <laughs> it would have, I would have lost everything. I would have lost myself. Ooh. I would have lost my dream. I would have lost the opportunity to live an unconventional life. I would have lost the lessons that come with self-reliance. My kids were, I always knew that being a working mom, the easiest time to be a working mom was when they were little, when they were toddlers. Stick them in a daycare. They would just want to play all day. They would never know. But I knew come their teen years, Yep. I remember my teen years, like I wanted to be there for them because that was like the opposite of what it. my mom did. She le- she went back to work during our teen years and I was like, that did not go well. I like for me, that did not go well. So m- my daughter was in first grade when I left my corporate job and my son was in fourth grade when I left my corporate job and now they're 12 and 15. And they've, for the last seven years of me having this business, the last six years of me working from home, they have watched me and they have learned things that they would have never learned before. And they listen and they're engaged. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, it's such a different family dynamic that there's like so much richness that like, as I develop myself as a person and my business, they develop along with me in like a really interesting and unique and very fulfilling way. And I think that I would have traded, and I'm in this, when we start our businesses, we want financial independence and we want personal freedom, financial freedom and personal freedom. And you think that a job provides financial security, but it doesn't. What does? Knowing your numbers. Tell me more understanding how much money you need to sustain your lifestyle and understanding how that, how you can bring that in, whether it's from a job or not. But I mean, there's nothing saying that your job can't lay you off or that that business couldn't go out of business. But for me, I know how much I need to make. I know the lifestyle that I want to have. I'm completely in control of going out and making that money. And I have the line of sight of when things are going south or when things are going north. And I am making those decisions. I have agency and I am in control of that. So can I ask you a question? Because this is just maybe more from me and, and my evolution of numbers. Talk about briefly the difference between your job, your salary, your money coming in (laughs) and knowing your numbers, because I conflated the two for so long. So can you just briefly unpack that? This was a, this was a year one in in business lesson for me because I kept not wanting to leave the fine quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes, financial security of my job until I could directly replace my salary. 
And that I didn't understand that my revenue was not going to equal my salary that I was making in my corporate job. And so at, at one point, at, at that point, I was just like, well, this is good enough. And that's when I left. When I was like, I've saved enough money. This is good enough. I had a verbal agreement with my husband that he was going to provide some air cover for me while I went and got this thing started up. And we had a one-year plan and we had a two-year plan. Year one plan, I took everything that I made in that business and I reinvested it. Yes, I understand privilege, having a husband who also brings in an income, yeah. but but really the first whole year of my business, I was also working in my corporate role. So anything, I didn't need the money. It was a side hustle for nine months. So anything that was made went right back into the business as an investment. And then year two, I was not going to take a paycheck. We were going to be a one income household. And then by year three, there was an amount of money that I needed to start bringing into the house. And I could only invest what I earned. I couldn't take personal income and make an investment in the business. And those were our rules. And hmm. so the, what you're talking about is that what you bring in in revenue is not your salary. So if you are making, uh, and I'm a profit first certified professional, so I'm going to be giving profit first related numbers because it's the easiest way. It's the easiest system to understand cash in a business and, and revenue in a business. If you bring in a hundred thousand dollars in revenue as per profit first, 50% of that is your pay, is what you would pay yourself. So you'd be paying yourself $50,000 on $100,000 in revenue. 15% would go to pay taxes because you have to pay taxes now out of this money that was being taken out of your paycheck prior. And then you have business expenses right? You have to run your business. You want to have uh, maybe some part-time admin support, or you want to invest in a personal development program, or you want to have some systems or software or an apps, or you have a computer that you need to buy. Those are expenses on your business. And that would come out of that $100,000 as well. So it's not direct one for one. Is that what you were talking about? Yeah, because honestly, there was, and I don't know if I've shared this before, but I came from a family where bankruptcy was filed, you know, and it, but very different circumstances. Father got into an accident, there was insurance issues, and it really just leveled our family. And then that was the domino effect. And so I was young watching that. And, but I never understood about spending. It was almost just like, I never saw budgets. I never, it was just like, we'll figure it out, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so just having that in my background and then seeing other people who had businesses where maybe they were taken advantage of or exploited and trusted people, I kind of wanted to do everything, but I never got my brain around the fact that the difference between what I was bringing in and then what I needed to do with those numbers, it really took me a handful of years to understand that and recognizing all the different burdens that we carry around those beliefs about ourselves having money or not having money, what to do with it. So it all, it felt like it stirred it all up to, it was a, a bit of my own inner hurricane and I'd go, ah, just have my account and go, tell me what to do and where to send things. But, you know, things really shifted for my confidence and clarity and how, cause then I was just working and I was kept working and working and I didn't have boundaries around that because one, I love what I did, but I also kind of just felt like I didn't have a sense of 
when I could take a break either. So knowing your numbers is really like, is a powerful boundary to me on, you know, how I can care for the things that matter most, like my well-being, my family and be generous with others too. Yeah. So I appreciate you unpacking that. Yeah. I think, I think women make a mistake. And so I just also want to say that, you know, I didn't start managing my own money until I started my business and I was 39 years old. So from the time Mm -hmm. I first started working, my husband and I have been together for 26 years. And we've been married for 21 years, which is a very long period of time. And we moved in together a year before we got married. And that's when I also happened to graduate college and get my first job and all those things. And like right from that very moment, I just handed him my paycheck. That's what I had seen being done in my house. Like that's what I thought you did. And I really have to credit my husband to me gaining a lot of financial literacy. I understood how money worked in business because I did that in my corporate job. But I also, there was a detachment and a separation with it because it wasn't my money. Somebody else managed it. I wasn't, I didn't have like direct responsibilities for it. It was like, it was, I understood it, but not in the same way. And when I started my business, I didn't know what in the world to do. And I looked at my husband and I was like, can you do my books? And like after the first year, I said, okay, well, I don't want you doing my books anymore. This isn't great. Like we have a different perspective. I'm going to hire an accountant or whatever. And he's like, no, you're going to do them yourself. And he's like, you're not going to hire this out until you can sit down with your money every week, look at it, navigate it, understand it before you hand it off. And I'm so mad. Just wanted to, I just (laughs) wanted to abdicate that responsibility it feels big. It's a, it's, there's something so can be so overwhelming about, about numbers, but once you understand them, they, they're not the boss of you. No. And I, and so what I want to see women doing is holding off on knowing their numbers and understanding that until they've done enough mindset work or have healed enough money stories. And mm-hmm. I actually think it should be the opposite or in tandem. I think if you know the math, it actually just knocks out some of the concerns that you're spinning on. And then you can actually get to the easier, more easily get to the root of some of those stories and some of those beliefs that you have that you want to reevaluate. Yeah. It's not about pushing yourself to have some false number that is uh, optic for the world. It's really figuring out what works for you how little or big that is. And I I think I always ask my clients and they really spin out. I'm like, what's your enough? Mm -hmm. And, and they like, that's a limiting belief. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's a boundary. (laughs) What's your enough that feels the life that you want to live, that you feel called to live, not the keeping up with the Joneses and the hustling, but what's your enough looking at time, looking at you know, the thing like for, for us, it's, you know, travel and, and those types of things, what's the enough around that. And it's, it's really flipping the script of more is more and more is better. And so that's exhausting people. Yes. So I think that most women are burning out because they don't know their numbers. And if they saw that they were, they had enough with a lot less work. So, so Brene Brown says that the opposite of scarcity is not abundance. It's enough. You got it. That's what that. And I I, I fought her on this for a really long time. I really did. (laughs) I did. I'm like mentally (laughs) fought her on this for, for a while until I just had a deeper understanding through my profit first training 
And what happens when you have enough is your nervous system calms down. You got it. And it regulates. And then you can actually step into more than enough. And so my goal is for women to always have more than enough. But we can't have more than enough until we have enough. And we have to know our, to know that we're, we are enough. Yes. And that what, what we make isn't connected They're not connected. to that. You're, and that's the work. Whew, yeah. That's the work. So I want to shift briefly just to talk about you and your husband. You both still are business owners and entrepreneurs. I'd like for you to talk briefly about how you navigate work life together and how maybe it's different from conventional wisdom often shared when both partners are running their own businesses. Yeah. (laughs) We've had this conversation. He and I have actually had this conversation so many times because I I know it's like really big. We're in the online space where women are like, I retired my husband. And, um, you know, I was like, that would certainly make things easier where if he was home taking care of things, but that's not what he wants. It's not what he wants to do. He has a business. He loves running his business. He builds things and he likes that. Nor do I want to be solely responsible for all the income coming into the family. I really like, and he really likes having a financial partner. And so I I think that our our relationship can be I don't think it's more complicated or challenging than any other relationship, to be <laughs> honest. Like sometimes I'm like, I don't know, this might be more complicated, but I really don't think so. We we definitely talk about business a lot. Like I've started recording our conversations at breakfast and at dinner because they're really good. We've got like a two-person mastermind going on here like <laughs> all the time. Like we solve some really big problems over like a barbecue steak. Because he runs a manufacturing business. So in all fairness, his his he does have some big challenges, especially right now as he was leaving. He has a habit of springing things on me at 6.30 in the morning when we sit down for a cup of coffee. And I'm like, not – What's up with that? I'm like, not the time, John. Not the time. This is not the time. <laughs> this is like Tara's trying to like get brains in her head and – and not the time. <laughs> <laughs> and it's always like anxiety-fueled stuff. So I'm like, okay. See, I, think, I think that's more me. I'm probably more like your husband to my husband. He's like, I haven't had my coffee yet, Rebecca. And I'm like, shoot, I've got big things to say. And he's like, I need my coffee first. So he, so he says to me this morning, he goes, I thought COVID was going to be bad. And I thought COVID was going to be the death of my business. Mm. He says, but this post-COVID supply chain issues and labor shortages, and it's really crushing mm. businesses that are dealing with physical products and inventory and and labor and and there's a lot of businesses we forget in a service-based business that we don't have these challenges. So so we're solving some, you know, really big problems for him sometimes. I think that the secret to our success is that we just like each other. Mm. And we have some things in common and we do, we, we, and we really differ in opinion. And we've, over the last year, we've had to really learn how to agree to disagree or respectfully disagree or, you know, just be okay, not being the same person. <laughs> yeah. Cause you are very different. You are different people, but we all are different. And I think sometimes we think 
with our partner, especially if we're really different, it's bad. I said to him, so if you were to, like, if you were to, humor is really big for us, especially me, it's how I deal with nice. my trauma. And like, if you were to ask my kids, like, if my husband was funny, they'd be like, no, like, he's so, he's so stiff. He's like, so intense, my husband. And he, he could be dry and like, sometimes a little bit of dad humor-ish. But like, I really actually realized that in order to live with me, he's a really funny guy. <laughs> And nice. I said to him the other day, I'm nice. like, you know, you really do have a good sense of humor to put up with me. Well, thanks for sharing that. I think it's important to touch on and give a window into that. So, okay, I want to talk about something uh, that you and I have had actually side conversations about before. And and it's about the, you, you've said and written something to the effect of the online world makes you stupid. <laughs> and I don't like that word me stupid. Neither. It's not allowed in our house. But in the sense that you're referencing people with advanced credentials or years of professional experience or deep skills, all of a sudden feel like they don't have any of those skills when they enter the online space. So I'd love for you to kind of share your bird's eye view of this phenomenon that you've been seeing for years and how it impacted you when you first started your business. Yeah. All right. So yeah, so I say so it makes us it makes us dumb, but I'll I'll reframe that and say it gives us amnesia. Ah, I like that. Okay, better. like it so like better. we forget we forget how powerful we are. We forget that we are experts. We forget that we do know something. And the, for the women that I work with, usually have a very deep professional background. They. <laughs> They have, or they've even run businesses before that have been brick and mortar, and now they're they're flocking to the internet to see how they can leverage technology. So this is what they want to do. They want to leverage technology to increase their income and use their time better, is, is what I think is happening. And then they go, there's this online thing, and then they get sucked into the matrix and it's what's the matrix like how do you define the matrix it's whatever app of your choosing is the matrix cuz once you're in you can't get okay. out right and and <laughs> the algorithm is only sending you the things that you're clicking on so you're just reinforcing whatever your beliefs and thoughts are while you're scrambling your brains with 8 second reels <laughs> because apparently we have an in, like in an intention attention span that is shorter than a guppy or a goldfish and this is somehow acceptable these days it's not acceptable to me like where is our moral compass like th this is like this is my nightmare fuel right so so we get so good intentions how do i use technology how do i leverage technology so that i can have a greater reach make more money help more people and do it in a way that leverages my time sucked into the to the matrix and then we start seeing all these things that are happening and we're like oh well i don't know how to do that i don't i don't know that technology i need to be this way this person is having success with it must be their whatever it is that they're doing and now we're copying unintentionally trying to copy people's strategies and business models and and process and 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 ways of doing things and but what they're really doing is copying their personality because this, mm. you know, making money online in the way that most people are seeing it, and I say making money, that's like really questionable, is a lot of person can be personality driven. And they, so we're seeing people try and copy people's personalities. And we forget that we actually know what we're doing. We have expertise that works. We have helped people 
we've provided solutions, whether it be in a corporate job or in our own businesses that maybe weren't online. And it happened to me. I was like, oh, I don't know anything. I don't, I'm a newbie. I'm mm. a newbie. I'm, and I wasn't a newbie, but I thought I was a newbie. If you have experience and expertise and you've either worked in corporate or you have or academia or small business or whatever it is, but you've maybe not worked for yourself or you have worked for yourself in a brick and mortar, mm -hmm. you are not a newbie. You're not starting over. So what do you think contributes to this level of scarcity and doubt, especially for established leaders like yourself and, and those that you lead on a regular basis? So I work with people who have online businesses and I work with people who don't have online businesses. And there's a big difference between the two because my, the people who don't have online businesses usually aren't even using the internet. They don't have like a mm. functioning website. They don't have social media for their business. Like, and yes, you can actually make money without a website and without <laughs> social media. It is possible. Sure is. And it's actually quite dreamy in my opinion. <laughs> So they're not seeing what their competition is doing. So they're not getting into the co comparison. They don't know what everybody else and, is doing. And they're not buying the big lie because they don't know is, it exists. Well, I mean, like what, well, no, like whatever big lie the internet's peddling that day, like that, Got like it. you're okay. a seven, that you have to be a seven figure business owner to be successful or that you Enough. can make money Enough. in your sleep or you know, that passive income is the answer to burnout or any of those things. They're all just a big lie. Well, and I would also add to that too, what you have, what it means to successful means you have to look a certain way. Very much. Yep. And you have to act a certain uh -huh. way and your tone and your language and your clothing and there's archetypes and uh -huh. it gets, yeah, there's, there's, there's some pretty insidious aspects to it too that are very, very dark, I think. I 100% agree. I have definitely worked with my fair share of like either business coaches or have been in certain communities that have done more to erode my confidence and have taken me longer to get over and have caused more harm to my business in that respect than anything else. Our confidence and our energy are, are key. Hmm. So how do you navigate it the scarcity and doubt when it comes up for you today? Well, I try and stay away from things that create it. So I'm actually not online very much. And I think the other way, well, first of all, is acknowledging that it exists. Mm. Right. Yeah, I, I think sure. that we, ha I think that we have an expectation again, perpetrated in the online space that you're only allowed to have an abundance mindset and that you're, you should never, ever feel scarcity. And I think scarcity is a part uh, of the human condition. And the expectation is, is that you will literally. feel scarcity and that's okay. So for me, it's first the expectation that I will feel this way and that it's not a bad thing. It just is what it is. It's a part of being human. It makes me real. We don't have to lead from it. It makes me real. Yeah, we don't have to lead from it. Though. Right? Sure and that real, yeah. I acknowledge that it exists and I speak compassionately to myself when it comes up and that I, I speak to the part of myself that is feeling scarcity so we can try and bring the it down a bit, right? Bring the- Get Some space. Yeah, yeah. Bring, bring the overwhelm down a bit. And I don't, I don't really try and analyze it, to be, to be honest. And I'm a pretty analytical sort- and I probably have done a lot of analyze, trying to analyze it in the past, but I really don't. I'm just like, hey, I, I feel that you're 
you're, you're feeling scarcity. This is real. It's okay that you're feeling this way. It's normal. And, you know, how can we work together to help you feel differently, better, less overwhelmed by it? You know, and for me, it's a lot of stepping away. It's a lot of regulating my nervous system. The key to making money is nervous system regulation. Key to a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Just having, yeah, it's being able to to regulate, you know, and befriending our fears, mm -hmm. befriending discomfort versus trying to bypass it, exile it, destroy it, kill it. It's a game changer, Huge. isn't it? Huge. Huge. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. All right. I have one, I have one final question that I want to ask. Earlier this year, you received a formal diagnosis for ADHD. Now you, and I know you had expected this for some time. What led you to getting a formal diagnosis? Watching my son get diagnosed and, and not just mm. diagnosed because he's been diagnosed for three, four years. And I knew that when he first got diagnosed, that that was also me. Like he's living my life. <laughs> it, it, yeah, like at each stage, I'm like, oh, yeah, like I totally see myself. Yes, I see myself there. And this last year with COVID and remote school was just so hard for him. And so mm -hmm. in the very beginning of the year, I actually had him reevaluated to make sure we didn't miss something. And at that time, we decided that he was going to go on medication. And <clears throat> when I saw that it wasn't just about him focusing better, that it changed his mood and his affect and his, his relationship with others and his relationship with himself and that we didn't realize that he had anxiety and that he was calm, like his, his body was calmer. I, uh, I was like, I think I need that. <laughs> I think, I think it's time to maybe look at this in a, in a different perspective because whatever he's got going on right now, I want some of that. That would be really good. Because, because likewise for him this past year for me with COVID and not knowing I had ADHD, knowing but not really under, I didn't understand it. I didn't do the, the mm -hmm. depth of research and understanding about it that I did this year. So I didn't really understand why things were so difficult for me, but like the lack of continuity, all the different changes in regulations and rules and how you can enter a grocery store or not enter a grocery store really kind of taxed whatever coping mechanisms I had that were not, you know, pharmaceutical related. So I was already naturally doing everything that you would do to manage those symptoms naturally. And it wasn't working mm -hmm. anymore like the way it had been. What impact did this diagnosis have on how you view yourself? I'm still working on that. However, I was like, oh, everything everyone has ever told me was wrong with me was actually related to ADHD. Hmm. Dang. That makes my heart hurt. We see every you know, teacher, we, every, we my apologize. parent, yeah. every employer, friends, like whatever, like whatever anybody had a complaint or a piece of feedback or criticism about me, I can directly tie it to it being a symptom of ADHD. So what's come up as you've processed a lifetime of navigating a brain that worked differently than the world 
said you should function? It's been really liberating for me mm. because I think I was just ready to let go of that stuff anyway. And this was just a little extra level of permission to be truly who, who I am. And also just understanding, understanding myself a little better. I, I could be very verbally impulsive and, and at times it could be inappropriate or funny, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> uh, and so my mom used to yell at me as a kid, filter. And that has been a huge mm. story that I have and, and a huge process of working through that every time I go to open my mouth, I hear her yelling filter. And I get very tongue-tied and it feels like word salad, you know, kind of. And, and like my words don't want to come out and they get stuck. And it's really uncomfortable physically to have my brain working in a certain way and then not being able to like verbalize it. And like there's always stuff that comes up around my throat chakra, you know, and, and all that stuff. And, I, and, and that's probably been one of the biggest areas that I've been looking at around boundaries, like when do I want to filter and when do I not want to filter? When is filtering okay mm. versus when is filtering not okay for me? Um, and I always want to – words matter. And so I take my words – I do take my words very, very seriously. And, you know, as somebody with a podcast and with a platform, not a very large one, but a platform of any size, I do feel responsible for the words that I share. And at the same time – it's okay, it's okay for me to be me. So it's mm. like, that's been like a real dance for me right now. I think that's powerful. It's okay to be me. And then setting those boundaries around, I'm not going to be around people or allow other people's discomfort or expectations to take that away. Yeah. So here's, here's what's okay. Here's what's not okay. Yeah. This has helped you come into more of you knowing it's okay to be you and discovering what that is. That's powerful. Oh, Tara, this was such a great conversation. We covered a lot of territory today. Where can people find you if they want to connect with you and your work? Sure. Three places. So there we I have a podcast, The Bold Money Revolution. I do hang out on Instagram. So I'm at the Tara Newman. And if you are someone who is like, you know what, Rebecca and Tara really inspired me to know my numbers and to get a bit of a handle on that. So maybe I don't have to, my system doesn't have to work as hard. I don't have to be as overwhelmed. Uh, maybe I'll do some math first and then see what plays out. I have what I call a revenue goal calculator that helps you get familiar with your numbers. And you can get that at theboldleadershiprevolution.com forward slash revenue. And we'll make sure to have links to all of that in our show notes. Tara, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for your leadership and for your heart and for sharing your Thanks. story. Really grateful Thanks for, for you. Thanks for having me on, Rebecca. It takes a lot of work to figure out how to build a life and a body of work that feels like an honest reflection of who you are without the filters and the highlight reels. So many of us show up and work in life following the rules and the shoulds of what we've been taught. We cultivate an image for fear of losing reputation and belonging. The fear of being seen, making a mistake, or less than perfect can override the need to get honest about the state of our lives. Instead of staying in denial and crashing and burning, Tara stopped trying to keep up appearances and got radically honest with herself and those in her community. Her honesty had its losses for sure, but there were so many gains. 
And Tara has modeled for us how the fruits of that honesty led to her rising from bankruptcy and questioning her career path to building a business and a life that is sustainable and impactful. What is unsustainable or off in your life right now? Where are you sacrificing your well-being in pursuit of keeping up appearances? And what support do you need to help you dig deep and practice more radical honesty? (laughs) We clench our jaws and tighten our fists, maintaining the status quo until our bodies and bank accounts can no longer sustain what is not working. Make the time now, before the next crisis, to get radically honest with yourself about your life and work so you can move closer to living a life that reflects you and reclaims your worthiness and safety from the collective other. Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. You don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, When time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you, where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I cannot wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can find this episode, show notes, ways to sign up for the weekly Unburdened Leader email and other free resources, along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com.